This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. When you stop and look at your diet, what kind of impact it's having on you, you're generally thinking about your physical health, right? Like if your diet's helping you lose weight, get fit, add muscle. But what about your mental health? Like how much does your food impact your mood? We're going to be getting into nutritional psychiatry a bit later, what that means, how much we should be thinking about it day to day. Later, we're checking in with Australian rugby as well because it's been a chaotic year. The Wallabies head coach has resigned. Now Rugby Australia's chairman is gone. What is going on there? First, though, hack. Australian Navy personnel have been injured by a Chinese sonar off the coast of Japan. On Triple J. Yeah, it was only a couple of weeks ago that we were telling you about the Prime Minister's big trip to China, how it was a breakthrough for relations. But over the weekend, we got some news in that could set it back a bit. A Chinese warship in waters off Japan apparently using sonar when Australian divers were in the water, even though Australia had warned China about the divers and had asked the warship to steer clear. Now, one of those Aussie divers has been injured. And our government is calling China's actions unsafe and unprofessional. So what did happen? And what is the bigger impact of this? Joe Lauder has more. This was dangerous. It was unsafe and unprofessional from the Chinese forces. The two divers were in the water fixing the ship's propeller last Tuesday. And they're in international waters that's operated by Japan. The Australian ship HMAS Toowoomba was there as part of a UN mission, so it was all very legit. And the Australian ship reportedly warned the Chinese destroyer that the divers were there. The Prime Minister spoke to Sky News Australia earlier this afternoon about it. The frigate involved uh, clearly had out a sign that there were divers uh, below. Mm. Uh, They were freeing up a fishing net uh, from the the equipment that was required uh, under the water. And they should have been allowed to undertake this normal activity. One of the divers reportedly suffered injuries to their ears. Michael Shoebridge is a director of the think tank Strategic Analysis Australia and is here speaking to RN Breakfast. Sonar is a very powerful acoustic system, so it pushes powerful acoustic energy through the water and often quite powerful low frequency. And uh, diving medical advisory committees like the one in the UK say... It can cause damage to hearing, it can cause dizziness, and it can also cause damage to uh, organs, to internal organs. And it's not the first time this kind of incident has happened in the South China Sea, but this is the first time Australians have been injured. It doesn't look like a misunderstanding, and it fits a pattern of Chinese military behaviour. The US government released evidence of over 200 dangerous incidents from the Chinese military in the South China Sea in this part of the world just recently. The Defence Minister Richard Miles says it's unsafe and unprofessional. And he says the government has passed that message on to Beijing. But the government came out publicly about this on Saturday after the PM was at a summit with the Chinese President Xi Jinping, even though it had happened before the meeting. The opposition wants to know why the PM didn't bring it up directly with Xi. He's boasted about the length and the uh, depth of the conversations that they had when he met them there. He would have known before he left Australia that this incident has occurred. The question for 
the Prime Minister to answer today, now that he's back in the country, is did he raise this and take this up on the behalf of the Australian people and our Navy personnel? But the PM said today he didn't have the opportunity to have a one-on-one. Well, we've raised it very clearly through all of the normal channels. Uh, we had, when I was in San Francisco, there was no bilateral meeting with President Xi. Just today, Chinese experts responded by questioning whether the Australian ship really was in the Japanese zone or in Chinese waters and saying that the Australian statement is vague and one-sided and aims to hype the, quote, China threat theory. Just to be clear, the Australian government has confirmed HMAS Toowoomba was in the Japanese area. The Prime Minister said that he hopes this won't seriously damage the relationship with China. Well, what I said when I was in China is that we will... Uh, cooperate where we can, but disagree where we must. And this is one of those times where we disagree with the action of China. Uh, We've made it clear that we disagree with what occurred. Hack Triple J. Joe Lauder with that update there. It's an interesting one. I want to get into this a bit more now with someone who knows a lot about this area. Dr. Adam Bartley is with RMIT. He's an expert in Indo-Pacific security. Adam, thanks for coming on Hack. I want to ask you, what do you make of what's happened here with the Australian divers? Like, how significant do you think this is? Yeah, look, it's this needs to be taken into context with other incidents that we've seen and and anyone who's watching let's say the philippines really closely in the south china sea for instance the fact that china has set up maritime militia units that actively block philippine vessels from accessing territory within its own exclusive economic zone that exists within international law right Uh, i mean that there are other incidents that we can take into into context here. And the the significance of this is that it's more of the same. Now, you know, you read in the newspaper, did the Chinese vessel understand that there were Australian naval divers in the water, for instance? Was it understood that, you know, within the chain of command in the PLA Navy, for instance, that it should not be harassing UN-sanctioned vessels That's not clear, but also part of the question is, is that important in this context anyway? And I say this because it's more of an illustration of a broader repudiation of the international rules-based order. We've seen this behaviour happen time and again, and I think this just illustrates that it's not going to stop. And unless there is a collective action by states like Australia, the United States, Japan, South Korea, and others to to say that, you know, this is unacceptable, then we are simply going to to continue to see the same. And and I think those norms and those rules are simply going to erode where we just have no authority. We just have to accept these behaviours. I was going to say, is it more difficult at sea? Like, can China be held accountable uh, for what it does in, in these waters? It's difficult. The problem is, is that at sea, we are lacking specific maritime governance and legal institutions to hold states accountable. You know, there are some like the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea, you know, and China is a signed and ratified member of that, but it actively uh, seeks to undo those. There's a broader issue here of basically have one actor 
we, we can probably say two because, you know, the United States has not ratified the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea, but, you know, it, it does, its Navy actually does adhere to those rules nonetheless. So unless we can have China be party to a broader conversation and to establish rules of the road, I, I see a greater, let's say, erosion of maritime behaviours. So what does that say going forward? I mean, what does the future of warfare at sea look like in your opinion? That's a really good question. And I think part of this answer forms on what the sea gives to states like China or Russia, states that do have an interest, would like to change the you know international law to, to better suit their own means and interests. The point is, is that um, grey zone activities or, or hybrid activities, if you whichever you choose, they give states the ability to move their strategic interests forward without entering into a major conflict. And, and that's what we see with maritime militia units. It's what we see, you know, when the Nord Stream 2 was uh, destroyed and recently the Baltic Connector connecting uh, Estonia and Finland together, for instance. These are all issues taking place in the maritime zone that, you know, there's no accountability. There's no way to assert with 100% accuracy that this one nation was responsible for this. And if we have a look at the future of, let's say, sea, sea warfare, under undersea warfare, if you will, what we're already seeing is that states are adopting area access, area denial capabilities. And if we transfer that, you know, to, let's say, the seabed where you can put sensors so you can understand where all vessels are at any given time, where you can have things like smart mines which are attached to the seabed floor and you know let's say an enemy vessel comes along its transponder is picked up by a sensor that automatically releases a mine for instance and that will explode at a certain depth you know these are technologies that already exist uh, artificial intelligence for instance is going to better coordinate navies we're going to be able to see the sea floor much more clearer than we ever have in the past. Yeah, it sounds like uh, what you're saying is we can expect to see more action on the seas, but also under the water as well in terms of unmanned vehicles and those kinds of things. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you take, let's say, aerial vehicles, UAVs or unmanned aerial vehicles, for instance, I mean, when they really came out, the first ones were bulky. They didn't, you know, they crashed all the time. That's where we are at the moment with UA, uh, sorry, UVs or, or unmanned, let's say, underwater drones. So we are going to get there, you know, in the near future when states, including Australia, Australia has a very active um, underwater drone program, are going to be employing these because they're much cheaper. We can build uh, many more of them. And for large bodies of water, which Australia has to monitor, it's going to be much more, let's say, economically feasible. So we are going to run into these problems a lot more. And just being able to transit the South China Sea or the Taiwan Strait will become much more of an issue. So interesting. And there's so much that we can expect in the years and decades ahead. Thank you very much for your take, Dr. Adam Bartley from RMIT. Thank you for coming on Hack. Thank you. Hack. This lifestyle and diet change has appeased this little voice inside my head. On Triple J. Have you changed your diet to improve your mental health? Because chances are you've probably heard a doctor talk about diet and exercise, how some little changes can make you feel a lot better. Maybe you've paid attention to it, maybe you haven't. But do you know just how much food can impact your mental health? Because apparently healthier diets, like heaps of fresh fruit and veggies, legumes, fish, whole grains, 
they can cut symptoms of depression by 35%. And there's a lot of evidence pointing to the link between your gut health and your mental health. So why is it so expensive to talk to a dietitian about it? Shalala Madora has been looking into it. There's this constant worry and fear. 23-year-old Julie from Ngunnawal, Canberra, has lived with anxiety for the last couple of years. So a lot of um, anxious thoughts about health of myself and others as well. In the past, doctors had told her that changing her diet could have an impact on her mental health, but she didn't really believe them. I was very sceptical because I, you know, always likened the feeling of eating junk, sugar and like processed food to making me like feel happy. Then about four or five months ago, something clicked for Julie, which is not her real name. Her diet hadn't been great before, but she made a commitment to changing it. I had like a peak anxiety phase where I was like, okay, this is I'm definitely going to have to get on medication now. But yeah, for me, I just didn't, I didn't want to go down that path. So I was like, okay, let's give this a go. Yeah, I started to exercise more and then eating cleaner foods as well. Julie says the change was nearly instant and had a big impact. Hugely. Like I can't even, I can't even stress it enough. Um, Like the anxiety is definitely still there. It doesn't consume me and take up all my energy within my day. What you eat directly relates to your mental and your brain health. Professor Felice Jacker is the director of the Food and Mood Centre at Deakin University. We know from right across the world that the quality of people's diets is linked to their risk for developing depression and anxiety, and it's not explained by things like income or education or body size. She says the field of nutritional psychiatry has been around for about 10 years, and the evidence collected during that time is pretty solid. Young, healthy people at university, if they have normally a healthy diet and they're shifted onto an unhealthy diet, you see impacts on their their brain, the key part of their brain that's related to learning and memory. And that happens within four days. To be clear, we're talking about a causal physical link. Not just that feeling depressed might make you eat junk food and vice versa. 70% of our immune cells are actually in our gut. That has a major relationship with mental and brain health. The way our genes express themselves, our mitochondria and how they work, our stress response system, all of these things are involved in mental ill health and they are influenced by diet. This is what a typical day of eating looks like for me. We start off with some beef cereal first thing. But beware of influencers who might be selling supplements or the latest fad diet. President of Dietitians Australia, Tara Diversi, says when it comes to food, one size does not fit all. So one of the things that's really important with nutrition is that it is personalised. Tara says dietitians are mental health care professionals. We do have some clients who may be on um, medication for their mental health disorders or other things, and some of the side effects that they may have with their gut, with their energy levels, with their weight, may be something that a dietitian can help them navigate. Professor Jacker says the conversation about food has been totally hijacked by the dieting industry. So much of our discussion for the last two decades has been on the Mm -hmm. obesity epidemic and it's all about body size and when people think of diet, they think about weight loss. 
Professor Jacker acknowledges that conversations around food can come with a feeling of shame for people who feel like they aren't doing the right thing or who live in a body that society deems unacceptable. That's why she reckons there needs to be an overhaul of the whole system. Everywhere you go, there are messages and, and marketing and ads to consume these ultra-processed foods that interact with the reward systems of the brain. And it shouldn't be up to individuals to fight back against that totally overpowering and overwhelming environment. That's part of the reason Tara thinks we need a national nutrition policy. We haven't had one for 30 years. She also wants to make it cheaper for people with mental health conditions to see a dietitian under Medicare. So people with mental health disorders should be able to access funded services like they can for psychologists and OTs in mental health. Both women think increased awareness on diet can save the health system a lot of money in the long run. Nutrition is a risk factor and an opportunity for improvement in a number of our health priority areas. It's certainly something that needs to be on the agenda a little bit more. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that update. A lot of you are telling us that, yeah, you've experienced this, that you've made changes to your diet. It's had incredible kind of outcomes for your mental health. Let's unpack it a bit more with someone else who's been looking into this. Dr. Megan Lee is a senior teaching fellow in psychology at Bond Uni. She's an expert in nutrition, mental health, that sort of thing. She is with me now. G'day, Megan. Thanks for coming on Hack. Thank you for having me. Do you think that we've really neglected nutrition when it comes to mental health especially for a long time? It's quite interesting because I started my PhD about four or five years ago and I was really interested in the relationship between food and mental health. And I was quite surprised that for a very long time we have known that uh, healthy dietary patterns can help with chronic illnesses like uh, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes and things like that. But it had only been in the last decade that people had started looking at uh, the relationship between food and mental health. So what should we be eating? Like, I guess it depends on different people because not everyone can eat the same thing and that's really important to remember. But generally, what's going to be making us feel the best? I could boil my whole PhD on food and mood down to three words. Eat more plants. There's four categories of food that will really help increase your mental health and your mood. The first one is fibre-filled foods. Anything that will help with your gut bacteria and feeding your gut is actually going to make your brain more. It just made all those vitamins and minerals bright colours. So you've got like your purple foods like blueberries, cherries and red cabbage. Then you've got your yellow foods like pineapples and lemons. And you've got your orange foods like pumpkins and carrots. They are all the foods with all the different vitamins and minerals we need. So if you eat just the rainbow of foods, you're always going to be providing your body and your brain the best health that you can. Okay, that's good to know. If you yeah. just think bright colours, amazing. <laughs> yeah, the third category is probiotic and prebiotic foods. So the probiotic foods help put more beneficial gut bacteria into your gut. So things like sauerkraut, kimchi, kombucha, yogurt, cheese, and then your prebiotics feed those gut bacteria. So you've got garlic and leeks and onions and all of your beautiful asparagus and your woody fruits and vegetables. So those feed those uh, gut bacteria. The fourth category is polyunsaturated fatty acids. You can find those in flax seeds, walnuts, fatty fish like salmon and tuna. And because the brain is a highly fatty organ, it craves fat. 
So you want to give it some of those polyunsaturated fatty acids. When we say eat more plants, there's probably people who are listening who are <laughs> vegetarian, vegan, maybe thinking, oh, well, I've got this sorted. But I guess, you know, when you're living that lifestyle, it might also come down to substitutes that might be full of harmful stuff as well that you've got to consider. I've been looking at that since my PhD. And what I found really surprising was that when I looked into the details of the research on vegans and vegetarians, it looked like they had worse mental health symptoms than the general population. And you're right, it comes down to these ultra-processed foods that are marketed, particularly to vegans and vegetarians, to replace meat, basically. People will often say, like, oh, it's just too expensive. Like, I'd love to eat better, but it costs too much. I can't afford it. What would you say to that? With the way that inflation is at the moment, that is very true. And we're seeing some really disappointing things out there in the world. Canned and frozen vegetables are becoming very expensive. We've always known that fresh produce has been quite expensive. We can say eat all these plants, but we know that the affordability of healthy food is actually worse than going and eating ultra-processed foods, which is something that's not great for our mental health. Dr Megan, is it okay to have a sweet treat every night? now and then because I guess people are thinking oh it does make me feel better and I mean sometimes when we do stuff like that it might improve our mental health a bit. Absolutely and my other uh, line of research is in intuitive eating and what that means is that if we go on diets and we deprive ourselves of all the foods that we like and it will last say 30 days once we finish that 30 days we're like yes I did my diet and then you go off and you binge right so diets don't tend to work but this intuitive eating actually means that you eat the things that you enjoy and you listen to your body's cues on whether it's hungry, whether you're full and what foods actually make you feel good. So if a sweet treat every now and then makes you feel really good, that's going to improve your mental health as well. Look, it's interesting stuff. Dr. Megan Lee from Bond University, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thank you so much. And we got a lot of messages coming through on this one. Chrissy says, as a celiac, if I eat gluten accidentally, I'll know because I'll be in a cranky mood at school. Mum would know if I'd eaten something I shouldn't by my mood. Food definitely affects your brain. Someone else says, this seems like the most obvious thing ever. Better food, more exercise, improved mood, of course. And another person says, irritable bowel syndrome, also irritable brain syndrome, yeah. Definitely a lot of thoughts on this one. We're going to move on, though. Hack. There's no doubt that there's been a coordinated campaign to sort of smear me, and that's been fed back through me and other board members. On Triple J. Yeah, if you're a rugby fan, you'll know a lot's been going down in Australian rugby over the past few months. Like, there's so much division, instability. We've got the head coach of the Wallabies, Eddie Jones, walking away a couple of weeks ago. Now the chairman of Rugby Australia, Hamish McLennan, told to get out. He says, oh, there's been a massive smear campaign that's been responsible to get rid of him. What is going on? And if you are a rugby fan, what do you think about all this? Message in 0439757555. Someone who does know a bit about the situation and the impacts of all this uh, is Jamie Pandaram, a sports reporter with the Daily Telegraph, is with us now. G'day, Jamie. Thanks for coming on, Hack. Pleasure to be here, Dave. How are you, mate? Yeah, good. But I'm curious, why was Hamish McLennan sacked like this? Uh, well, he had a 
pretty confrontational, robust style of management. So that's the first thing. He got a lot of people offside um, with just the nature of how he conducted his business. Um, you know, uh, some will say that that was exactly what was required to make the necessary changes in Australian rugby. Uh, he came in at a time um, when the game was crippled by the COVID crisis. Um, there had to be a t- television broadcast deal done, um, a lot of finances to sort out, and he managed to to achieve a lot of that. Um, but then as time has gone on, he's also been criticised for making what you'll call, and as he's referred to himself as captain's picks, uh, most notably sacking the Wallabies coach Dave Rennie at the start of the year and replacing him with Eddie Jones. We now know how that turned out, which was disastrous for Australian rugby, the worst ever World Cup result. He also drove the signing of Joseph Suwali'i from the NRL on what is a record contract, 5.3 million over over three years. Um, And I guess the clincher was um, his demand that all the states fall into line around what he believes is the right centralisation model for Australian rugby. What that essentially means is that Rugby Australia will have full control um, of the game from money to commercial direction to the high performance of the Wallabies and every other team in the system. Now, the states generally agree that there needs to be a high-performance centralisation. They've got no qualms about that. They were irked at the prospect of handing over all of their financial control to Rugby Australia, given RA has had its own financial problems, could not secure private equity funding, which would have um, alleviated a lot of their uh, stress. Um, they're now going to have to take up more loans. Um, you know, they sort of uh, need about $90 million to keep going. So they'll, they'll need more uh, more in terms of loans to service those debts uh, so, look, it really was about get your hands off our money, RA. Um, McLennan wasn't willing to budge on that. And so six of the member unions wrote uh, a remarkably strong letter uh, on Friday night demanding McLennan's resignation. That sparked a series of board meetings over the weekend. Yeah. And what transpired was that the board recommended uh, Daniel Herbert um, as the man to stand up and potentially take over as chair. And on Sunday night, last night, there was a, a, a meeting held. Um, Herbert put himself forward. And as we've learned today, uh, all the board members except for McLennan voted for Daniel Herbert. So he is now the chairman. Um, McLennan was given the opportunity to continue as a board director, uh, but he refused and he's resigned. So he is now out of the game. It's Interesting. I mean, there's so much division, it seems, in this code. And obviously, we've got uh, Hamish McLennan now saying there's this, been this smear campaign. Is it impacting, you know, support for rugby across Australia? Like, is it is rugby losing a bit of support? Is it struggling in that area? Is that a big concern for those in the game? No doubt. I mean, the game has been plagued by disunity, factions, infighting, for many, many years, this is just the latest iteration of this sort of infighting that really is crippling um, what is a great sport, but a sport that was the number one football code at the start of this century and is now languishing. Uh, I mean, just to see the way that it has diminished uh, in the public eye is is quite sad. As, as someone who 
loves the game. Um, you know, like aside from the Wallabies' poor performances at, at this World Cup, it, it really is a remarkable tournament that does bring the world together. There's, there's very few sporting events in the world. You can count them on one hand. The Football World Cup, the Olympics, and the Rugby World Cup. And had Australia done better, we would all be jumping up and down about how good rugby is going. Um, but we were eliminated in the pool stages, first time ever. Um, and that is on top of years and years of sort of ambivalence towards community, um, agenda-driven uh, decision-making um, by the Rugby Australia board, uh, by the by the executives um, of the states and the member unions, and it's left the game where it is now, which is floundering, um, you know, Many, many people that I grew up watching the game with no longer watch rugby, and that's sad. Um, there's a generation of kids that, that have never seen the Wallabies win uh, a Bledisloe Cup. Um, they don't know what winning looks like. Um, so it it is on the precipice. You know, the, 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 What we have here is a game that it's, it's really um, on a knife edge in terms of how it will survive, how it will garner support from the next generation to really keep it going. Yeah, there's definitely a lot to think about here, especially with the next few years, you know, Australia hosting the 2025 Lions Tour, the 2027 World Cup. Look, we appreciate your take on all of this. Jamie Pandaram, sports reporter with The Daily Telegraph. Thanks for joining us on Hack. No worries. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.